All right, let's move into our movie review, which this week is an MCU film. Super exciting, because if you know us, you know that we are perhaps way too into the MCU. We love it. We talk about it all the time. We really enjoy it. Um, So this is exciting, and it is, of course, Eternals, Marvel's Eternals. Kirk and I went to go see it on opening night. We were there, and now we are ready to share our thoughts on this film. Kirk, are you ready to go? I'm so ready. Yeah, let's do it. So I will be synopsing this film. And so Eternals is based on the Marvel Universe heroes, the Eternals, which were originally created by Jack Kirby, but brought to uh, more acclaim and popularity by the great Neil Gaiman, one of the great sci-fi and fiction writers that we have today. Uh, And this movie is, you know, loosely based on those characters in the same way that all uh, MCU movies are sort of taken from the comics, but twisted to meet the, the needs of the MCU. So ultimate plot of this is that Eternals are these ancient, ancient beings that are created by Celestials and are given to a planet to help the civilization come along. They have psionic powers and abilities to use the Earth's energy to help you know, they all have different types of abilities and they're able to use their abilities to help the population along. Now they have to be sort of hands off in the sense that they can't really intervene except for they have to just not let deviants, which are the counterparts of the Eternals, destroy civilization and they have to keep the earth alive. So we have all these heroes that are living amongst humankind. They have been doing so for 7,000 plus years and now deviants are returning to Earth when they think the these Eternals believe that they eradicated the deviants, you know, way back in like the 1500s, and they're actually having to deal with them again. So all the Eternals are coming back. They're learning about this event called the Emergence, which is, you know, they figure out that this is ultimately what the Eternals are there for, which is to help a celestial wake from the core of the Earth, which would destroy the Earth which leads to this whole conflict of some Eternals want to fulfill the mission, let the Celestial awaken, and the other group of Eternals do not, and they want to keep the Celestial under wraps and preserve Earth and save humanity, which is sort of the core conflict um, that this whole movie builds around. So we get introduced to lots of Marvel, I don't know, theology, world building, like the, the way that they do business, lots of like, uh, what, what would you call that? Like anthropology or, or something like that? Like the the history of Marvel in a way. And we get lots of new characters uh, who are the Eternals. So that is pretty much it. I mean, there's a lot more, but <laughs> like as far as a brief synopsis, that is sort of where we're at. Yes, it's fascinating to look at this because I believe we lose four of them along the way in this movie. Lots of, yeah. It, and you sort of knew that, right? Like, it's a big cast. There had to be some thinning of the herd, <laughs> you know, in order for this to make sense in the MCU going forward. Like we have, we have groups, you know, there will be the fantastic four. Eventually we already have the guardians of the galaxy. Uh, you know, we have a couple of different groups of people, but like 10 heroes. Nah, <laughs> that's, that's not going to slide. That's not going to slide. too many. That's Way too, too many. many. What I, what I love about the Eternals is that, I recently found a comic book that my father had tucked away uh, of this, like the actual original OG 
comics of the Eternals. There's like four or five of them. So A, I'm going to be super rich really soon. Just a heads up everyone. And <laughs> B, I'm excited to see what's in those to see what plays out with the rest of the Eternal storyline in the MCU to see how close it ties together. Yeah, and I will say that like I read the um, the Neil Gaiman Eternals story a few months ago to sort of get ready for this, and it is similar in nature, but lots of lots and lots of details have have changed. You know, there's there's still this concept of like a sleeping celestial. There's still these concepts of like certain Eternals knowing more than others and having ulterior motives and sort of causing a divide. But like you know, different things like sprites a boy. Makari's a, a man and is like the main character. Uh, Icarus and not Cersei, but maybe it is Icarus and Cersei. But there's like different relationships and things like that going on. Druig is like kind of evil. Like there's all there's all kinds of different things. So they've definitely moved things around here. But let's get into it. And then at the end, we're gonna talk about the MCU implications of this. And we're definitely going to talk about those post credit scenes. So stick around for that as well. All right. To kick it off, I am starting with my Oscar, who my Oscar is going to. This is tough because like I said, stacked cast, tons of huge name actors, tons of different characters, tons of plots and subplots and character dev and all kinds of things going on here. But for me, I ultimately went with Barry Keown, who plays uh, Druig in this movie. I just really felt like, for whatever reason, so, and sometimes you get this, where the main protagonist, which I guess in this case would be uh, Jimma Chan's Cersei, sometimes they write the protagonist character in, in a way that's so neutral that you almost don't feel super affected by their performance emotionally. I felt like at times Jimmy Chan was great. And I actually think that she did what she was instructed to do, but that the character itself didn't lend itself to as much artistic expression and being able to show the range and things like that. Whereas Barry Keown just came in as Druig and totally put his handprint all over this movie. I just felt like his character, um, it, it was clear he understood how it was written and he brought it to life on screen, which is exactly what you're supposed to do. He was written in a way where he goes to the beat of his own drum. He has not subscribed. He doesn't subscribe to the Eternals cult per se. He does things his own way. He had a realization about humanity a while ago and has chosen to live his own life. And he's a guy who's going to ask questions. He's going to ask questions. He's going to do his own thing and um, be a host unto himself. And I felt like Barry Keown totally embodied that and delivered the performance in such a way that he's one of the real characters in this movie where you just, you don't know where you're at with him. And that's how it's supposed to be up until the very end because he ends up being this huge power player at the end and helping them you know, accomplish their mission of making the Celestial go to sleep or whatever. And you don't see that coming because you're like, wow, this guy, you know, who knew that he was going to do it? And I think that it totally is because of his performance and the way that he owned it. But I mean, he, he was great. I think there's a scene where they go to where he's living deep in the woods and he confronts Icarus about their whole plan. And he just really delivered that performance. And it felt just like a very human discussion and like a very human conflict and, and just, he really brought it to life and I thought he was excellent. So Barry Keown, he's been in a lot of things. He's been really great. I most recently saw him in the green Knight and thought he was awesome. So, uh, Barry Keown, great job. 
Wonderful, wonderful choice. I cannot ever not nominate Mr. Richard Madden because he is not only a god in this movie, but I believe he's a god in real life, ladies and gentlemen. He's a Scottish prince um, (laughs) because just look at him. He is just like perfect. And when you see him, sometimes you get actors, they look really good, you know, the celebrities, if you will, and they just look like, oh, look at them. They're, they have a great re- re- regimen, like Rob Lowe. Rob Lowe has perfect skin, but he's not a great actor. Okay. I'm going to say it on record right now. Richard Uh-oh. Madden. Richard Madden is a perfect specimen, top to bottom, in physique, in looks, and in talent. I one day hope to be him or to be like him. I feel like there's some similarities. Uh, maybe we can get a side-by-side sometime soon of me and Richard Madden. It felt like if I had a personal trainer and worked out every single day, maybe I would look just like him. I digress. Richard Madden has this enormous capability to suddenly just capture you. He doesn't have to work hard at it because he is also um, studying the script so hard that he is becoming the character. I do not believe he's a method actor. I just believe he is very good at creating his, doing the work, his character study and getting into the mindset internally that he is going to portray whatever character is on that script. He goes through such a wide range in this film. I mean, it's it's the Hans effect, like in Frozen. He is, uh, he's the Superman uh, in the MCU world uh, for, for for the Eternals for thus far in the MCU. He is, he has all these, these. Uh, he can fly, he's got laser eyes, he's super strong. He's Superman, uh, plain and simple, basically. And he's also, he's got the girl, him and Cersei have, have, a, uh, have a love interest. Uh, they get married for 5,000 years. And then... And then you find out that Mr. Richard Madden is turned on all of our core Eternals because he is someone who believes in the the idea of making sure that this Celestial gets birthed appropriately. He's able to compartmentalize relationships, compartmentalize information, and then seemingly just throw whatever uh, trust that you had in him out the window, but then still loving him. I mean, this guy is bad to the bone he's ready to kill everyone and still at the end of his character arc you're like please don't like kill him don't just like off him and then you're kind of excited that he gets away that he he comes full circle he realizes you know what the trust i have in my in my family in these eternals is so powerful um and then he flies himself straight into the sun maybe he can survive it why because he's richard madden only time will tell in eternals part two Richard Madden takes the win for me. It's interesting. It's interesting. Uh, you know, I, you and I disagree on Superman, and I feel like you and I disagree on Icarus as well. I just, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just something I have against these characters. Like, I just find them so, bleh. like, I, I love <laughs> Richard Madden. I think he does an incredible job in everything that I've seen him in. I think he's excellent. And I just, it's, I still like. I wanted it to be the Hans effect for me. Like I wanted, I wanted to feel like when he betrayed, I wanted it to be like, Oh snap. They did not just do that, but I just didn't get that vibe. So it's just, I, I, I don't know. It's probably personal. I need to like talk to my counselor about it or something. Like, why do I hate <laughs> these people? <laughs> I don't know, but good pick. Good pick Kirk. Um, Thank you. Let's go over to scene stealer. Oh my gosh. Let me tell you, I wrestled with this. Just so many candidates and, Here's what I will do. I will not choose 
multiple. I, I've done that before and it's rude and I won't do it. But I will say that I was down to three and those three were Brian Tyree Henry, Lauren Ridloff, and Kumail Nanjiani. And I ultimately went with Brian Tyree Henry who plays Fastos just because I felt like he had so much on his plate to drive home. He was the only one that had like a human relationship with a son. He had skin in the game. He was balancing the stakes of humanity on the whole versus his, you know, his goal as an eternal. And, you know, he had sort of written off this whole life of as an eternal. So I really think his character gave him more of an edge over the other two actors that I mentioned because he just had more depth sort of layered in there. But I've always been impressed with Brian Tyree Henry. I, I just, I love, I was so stoked when he was cast in this movie. I think he's great in Atlanta. I thought he was great in Godzilla uh, versus Kong. I just think he, he's got great range and he does a lot of things really, really well. And this movie was just another testament to that. He was funny. He was, uh, just very natural and he's he's reacting to things in a movie that's at times feels a little bit dry and a little bit like the dialogue feels a little bit I don't know almost too formal at times he was bringing this level of real talk just real conversations with people him and Kumail especially were just totally bringing it down to a level where people could relate to it and I thought that it was much needed and that his emotion you know, the thing with Kumail's character is that he sort of doesn't come to terms with his emotions and that sometimes at the most emotional parts of the movie, he's like a no-show. He's gone just because, again, the way the character's written. But Brian Tyree Henry is like going through all of it as Fasto. So you can see the wheels turning in his head and it was really impressive. I, I love what he brings to the table. I thought it was another great performance and he's, I'm becoming a very big fan of this guy. So excellent performance there. Beautiful. Um, I also had mine down to three. And guess what? I'm breaking the rules this week. No, Kirk. I'm kicking all three. Whoa. <laughs> I'm going to rank them. I'm going to rank them, though. So you're going to hear my top one who basically took the cake. But I cannot not mention them. I cannot not mention them. In third place in my top three tier win of best supporting actor, the scene stealer goes to Mr. Kit Harrington who plays Dane nice. Whitman. Dane Whitman yeah. I, admittedly, have never seen a single episode of Game of Thrones. Just not my jam. Womp, womp. That era, I don't know what it is. It's very difficult for me to watch movies from uh, you know, a gladiator-type world. In fact, I had never seen Gladiator until 2020 because it just doesn't... Um, just doesn't get me up in the morning, right? I'm just like, nah, whatever. Yeah, and just swords, dragons, whatevs. But Kit Harrington, I literally never seen him actually perform in something, and he was quite charming, quite fantastic, and just owned every bit of his role. There wasn't a moment where I thought that wow, they just brought him in because they haven't seen, we haven't seen Richard Madden and him since Game of Thrones. This is their first appearance since the series, and. This was wonderful. He was electric in his role. Every time you saw him, you were just magnetized to him. So Kit Harrington, fantastic job. Fantastic job. My second one, the runner-up to Scene Stealer, goes to Miss Lauren Ridloff as Makari, MCU's first deaf actress, MCU's first deaf superhero. Fantastic 
fantastic. We first saw Lauren Ridloff uh, debut in The Walking Dead, her biggest, her other biggest role to date. Obviously, Eternals magnifies that. I have this strange affinity for the deaf community. Um, I don't know what it is. It's it's just that there are so many intricacies within that community that are so important that are that need to be uh, just voiced in in such a large platform. Um, uh, at one point, I was writing a, a musical about a uh, about a deaf person, and one day I hope to pick it back up and continue it, but. Her role is so powerful in in that her her entire existence, her entire community, and relationship with her uh, other Eternals. Um, I almost said her eternal friends, you know, uh, her other <laughs> eternal buddies. They, even though we don't get to hear uh, from a vocal perspective uh, how she speaks to them. Every interaction is different, uh, even though she's signing. Some people she has very limited contact with, but everyone in their group knows how to communicate to her, and they communicate to her in a different way on a different level. So, bravo to Lauren Ridloff in in order to um, in order to make that so specific um, in 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 just advocating for for the deaf community. And I cannot wait to see her in Eternals Part 2. I'm saying that like Dune Part 2. And number one, who takes the cake, my, my number one scene stealer, is Miss, I never thought I'd say this, Angelina Jolie. Wow. Angelina Jolie is like, I don't know. Every time I think about her, I think she's washed up. Every time I think about her, I th- I get, you know, cringy from the Billy Bob Thornton days and the blood vial and, um, and, and her weird relationship with, you know, marriage with Brad Pitt and, the names of their kids. And I just always feel like Angelina Jolie shouldn't be at the top of a list when you're casting. So when they cast her, I'm like, oh, of course, you know, she gets every role, but that's not true. That's not true. Angelina Jolie does not get every role. And I thought that in this role in particular, she portrayed something that we're seeing more and more and more of, especially unveiling in the MCU is somewhat of a mental health awareness in that Angelina Jolie's mind is literally playing tricks on her. It's literally attacking her and her reality of things because they've been through this emergence over and over and over again on different planets. And so her mind is actually awakening, trying to remember these things and uh, having her lash out in this kind of made up disease that they give her. But her performance in this, I want you to watch it really closely because there's no phoning it in. There's no uh, pretending. uh, I mean, she's acting, yeah. But there's no... It's not backseat to anything. She is going full force, and I completely resent that I thought that Angelina Jolie was simply a celebrity. She is a fantastic actor, and this reminded me of that. So bravo to all three of my winners for... Scene stealer. Good choices. Yeah, I think it just really highlights that this is a, a pretty a, a cast with a pretty deep bench. Uh, lots of lots of different characters and talents on display, and we we represented a good chunk of them with our scene stealer choices. And runner what if I just kept going? Like, and number four for <laughs> and scene <next>. stealer. <laughs> yeah, honestly, you could. It it was uh it was a pretty good cast. Um, credit to Chloe Zhao and the casting team and all of those who pulled this together because I think I think it all meshed together really well. But let's move on to the production side and talk about Showstopper. I think for me, perhaps super unsurprisingly, is uh, the visuals, which 
you know, Chloe Zhao and her very abbreviated career <laughs> so far has uh, distinguished herself for her incredible landscapes and textures and natural lighting and the way that she, um, you know, puts together the cinematic product. And this was no different and actually just stellar and, and beautiful the way that it was shot. It, every shot felt very intentional in terms of where they were at, what the colors and hues were, what the lighting looked like, whether someone was backlit or front lit, whether there was a glare in the camera, um, just really thoughtful approach to storytelling from a visual perspective. And then also meshing that with the VFX, which is hard to do. I think something that is really difficult, and we haven't really had a character like this in the MCU so far. It's just having someone who's like a normal person flying around. Like we have Captain Marvel, but they're always able to sort of doll that up with a ton of like her little um, photonic like aura that's around her. So it looks very, I don't know. Sometimes when you see like Superman or something in a, a live action version floating around, there's just something very unnatural and off putting about it. If they, you know, I always felt that way about the DC movies. It's just like, that just does not look right. But the way that they did Icarus with the beams coming out of his eyes and the way that he flew uh, looked very natural and looked very well done. It didn't look odd at all in the way that they sort of moved the camera around him as he's flying through the air. It was just a really smart way to do it so that it's not totally, you know, you don't break that sort of suspension of disbelief with somebody going, well, that looks odd. Um, so I thought it was really, really, really well done. And I, I think the, you know, you've seen it in the posters, you've seen it in the trailers, you knew the visuals were going to be something that was different for the MCU. And Chloe Zhao, obviously Academy Award winning director for her work on Nomadland, that was one of the big things that that movie was lauded for. So, like I said, unsurprising, but it is the genuine article. It's not just hype, it really is really well done, and it gives this movie a really special and unique feel to it. So, that's my pick. I thought it was well done. I'll be looking forward to watching it again to uh, get that experience. Yeah, I mean, you could just go ahead and copy and paste the vocal track of yours to mine because <laughs> there are so many stunning shots in this film. Um, one of the moments that I think about uh, on a daily basis, <laughs> I don't know why I said seeing this, <laughs> is when uh, Gemma, Gemma Chan is uh, sitting uh, crying in the, in the sand. Is, is that the moment when she realizes what's going on? Yes. With, um, yeah. That's after she's connected with Agamesh or whatever. Um, and she's like, man, we're... Is, is Arishim, that the name, right? I think. Agamesh, right? Yeah, right? pretty close. <laughs> I got this. I got this. <laughs> um, and she is just, just like, it's all coming together. She just got warped and connected to him. And she is realizing that their existence has been to destroy multiple humanities and multiple planets. And that their existence is that they're the bad guys in, in all of this in, in a big way. Um, to raise up civilizations and then tear them out, tear them down immediately so that the uh, Celestial can feed literally on their progression and on their energy and their population. It's sick. It is sick. And so this beautiful shot of her just like sobbing 
realizing this uh, in this like sunset uh, desert uh, kind of uh, whatever like just so many of those things uh, then you have her and Icarus by the by the giant rocks it's kind of like a meeting place that they go to multiple times uh, throughout their 7,000 year history um, even the streets in London where they're running away from the deviants is like beautiful as as Sprite and uh, and Circe and uh, and Icarus are walking down the street like any moment you can pick out of this and like Man, that's beautiful. I mean, she must have just story storybooked just amazing, incredible locations. Uh, kudos to her location scout as well, whoever that may be, because put that all together and you just have like a yearbook of of just beautiful spots, uh, like like a vacation uh, book, if you will, too, to like visit here uh, to get eaten by a deviant, to visit here to realize your reality is not what you think. Like it's <laughs> it's very very cool in in both those aspects. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's 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 for sure the thing you take away from the movie. Like you, it just has a very different feel. It, it really does, and, and for the for the best. Um, okay, let's move into director shoes. Uh, yeah, my director shoes is really that this movie is just overly ambitious. You know, I, I don't I don't think that they did anything wrong per se. I just think that it was too much. They just bit off way too way more than they could chew. I think a really good way to approach this storyline would have been to build a story, an origin story for the Eternals that started at their awakening when they first wake up, moving all the way up to the Tanat Chiklan scene where they think they've wiped out the rest of the Deviants and they go their separate ways because they have that big tiff. Let that be Eternals 1 have some sort of tie-in to the regular Marvel Universe at that to keep people interested, and then do the rest of this in Eternals 2. Um, now, they've said that they may not sequel this movie or whatever, but the bottom line is that there's just too much here. There's too much here. Between the time jumping, all the different characters, all the different relationships, the, I actually think the approach that the writers and Chloe Zhao took of really focusing on the very human relationships between each of these people was smart, but what it the effect that it had was that it really drugged the pace down of the movie because there had to be so much of it to where you get at the end that the story makes sense and has a nice arc to it, and it's too much. It it, it hurts the pacing too much to where this two and a half hours feels like a really long two and a half hours, and you even still, after focusing so much on the character death, you don't feel overly connected to all of the characters you're supposed to feel you're supposed to feel overly connected to so i just think it was just it was just insanely ambitious i'm surprised that they tried to do all of this in one movie i know kevin feige has said in the past they wouldn't have even done this movie if it wasn't for chloe Zhao stepping into the picture so maybe they just felt like this is the right way to go about it and to be honest like i, I don't think it's a huge detriment to the film like i don't think it torpedoes it but it definitely has a negative impact on the pacing and the momentum of the story and it definitely has an impact on the end result where not everything sticks the way that they want it to and is as impactful as the way they want it to and then the other thing you have that layers onto that is like and we'll get into this more when we talk about mcu implications but why is this you know you have to tell the consumer why this movie is here now 
You know, there's no direct tie-ins to anything we've seen in the MCU f- so far. Even the Dane Whitman thing, you know, he if you're a Marvel fan, you know that he goes on to become a character called the Black Knight. That's not a tie to anything we've seen in the MCU so far. And you're giving this huge theological background on Celestials and Eternals and all this stuff. You're doing all these time jumps. And at the end, you're left with like, okay, well, what does this even mean for the MCU, right? So it makes it even harder that you've just drudged through this two and a half hour really in-depth character study. And now you're at the end and you're like, what were, you know, of course the stakes were humanity, but you knew that the planet wasn't going to blow up. So it just, it has a lot going against it. And I think that they just, like I said, I think they just bit off a little bit more than they could chew there. And, uh, you know, it, it, it impacted the end result in my opinion. Kirk, your thoughts. Wish I had some sunglasses uh, to say from Adam Sandler's um, uncut gems. I disagree. <laughs> I disagree. Um, I really enjoyed the length of this movie. I thought I was going to be overwhelmed by it um, because early reviews, they said as much that they should have broken this up uh, like you would have preferred. But I felt for whatever reason, I was compelled at every point of the story. What dragged me down was that um, the CGI was not that great. It really, really, um, shocked me on how not great it was, uh, specifically the deviants. And obviously the deviants had to be CGI, but I mean, there's a lost art in puppet work. I mean, maybe parts of them could have been puppets, uh, obviously not all of the, the movements that they did, but I feel like if you had a core puppet with some CGI green or blue, whichever screen you're going for, um, then I, there would almost be an opportunity to make it last longer because immediately as I'm seeing these deviants come out, I'm like, I'm thinking, no, these aren't going to last three years with technology advancing. Um, even the ship at times, which is just great. It's just a triangle. It's fantastic. You just do a geometric shape with geometric drawings on it that tie into their geometric powers. Um, even at times their ship was too CGI'd for me. And it's very specific because it is a superhero movie that we can't do these things. No person can actually do these things. But, I mean, I can go back and watch Endgame and see Thanos, a fully CGI character, which is a dangerous, dangerous thing to do. I'm looking at you, Star Wars, with General Grievous. Um, He still looks great to this day. And I think he'll look good for a really long time. But this, in this movie, I could tell it's going to have a Jumanji effect really, really quickly. And that was upsetting to me so much that when I watch this in the future, you know, the deviants are part of the pull for this for such a big part of the movie. We think that the deviants themselves are the only villains in this, um, which no, they're not. Like I think about, I'm going to watch these movies with my son one day and my daughter and say, all right, let's watch the progressive timeline and we get to this one and it's going to be like, oh, those kind of look like what I can draw on my color wonder page, you know? So I was a little disappointed in the CGI um, because there were such good practical effects at times and then it was glaring when, when the CGI wasn't up to par. Yeah, I feel you. I mean, I think the deviants it's a it's a tough assignment from a CGI perspective in general because mm-hmm. they're just they are what they are. They're you know, they're, <laughs> they're 
they're these nasty beings. And honestly, I, I could have done with a lot less of them in general in the plot. Like yeah. I understand their plot purpose, but I was so annoyed at the end when you have Thena being choked out by the deviant thing. I'm like, can we be done with you guys? Like we know that you're not plot relevant anymore. I'm tired of this whole thing. Like I'm over it. Um, I don't know. I, like I agree. And I, I just think that maybe that gets solved. If you, if you can break it up, I don't know. There's just, there's a lot, there's just so much, there's so much packed into this little movie. So it's, uh, it's interesting. Let's move into final thoughts and scores. So I think something a little bit different about this movie as I go into my thoughts is that, you know, I went into it knowing that it was getting mixed reviews because I, there's no way I could have avoided that with a movie of this scale. Just, it is what it is. Like I, I, you know, you guys know, if you listen that we try to avoid it as much as possible, I knew exactly what the Rotten Tomatoes score was walking into the theater because the score itself was a story because it's the first MCU movie to ever be rotten, whatever. Um, that said, I don't, I don't let stuff like that affect my scores. I just prefer to know as little as possible. But anyway, asterisk next to it if you want to <laughs> for that reason. I knew what was happening uh, on that front. For me, uh, I, I can totally see why a critic uh, would dislike this movie. I just can because if you're evaluating it as a movie itself, it has issues. Some of the issues I called out in my director's shoes, I think um, in the MCU, it makes a little bit more sense. And honestly, it's surprising that these sorts of things, you know, don't happen more often in the MCU where you get mixed reviews because it's, this is, you know, at this point, like a 30 plus movie anthology that they've got going on there. But, you know, in the past when we've had movies that have been a little bit mixed in terms of reviews, you understand that so age of ultron thor dark world you know the incredible hulk things like that they were slower by design because you have to slow things down every once in a while to drive a story and that's totally what they were trying to do here they were like okay let's really focus on the bones of this thing to drive it home and hopefully we can scale it to some sort of resolution that feels good at the end i think box mostly checked on that but what I think most critics go into a Marvel movie expecting it to be fast, expecting it to be straight to the brain, expecting it to have the formulaic feel to it, and this just wasn't that. And beyond that, when critics are looking to their left and looking to their right saying, how does this fit into the MCU, if you're not super close to all the different storylines and stuff, it's not immediately apparent. And I don't think it's immediately apparent to you know mainstream fans who are just kind of sort of casual MCU fans as well. They're going to go, what, we, what is all this? Um, so I think that hurts it to an extent, but I don't think that this movie is a disaster by, by any means. And, um, you know, it, I, I think in general, I really enjoyed it. I liked the characters. I, I, I thought the story did well for itself with the exception of, I, again, I just think it was a little overly ambitious and there was too much going on at times, but overall, like, I could see, you know, I'm sitting there going, okay, I know why they did this. I know why Chloe Zhao is making the decisions that they're making. Like, it all made sense to me. It just was one of those things that was just really hard to do. And they, I think they did about as good as they could have done. Um, and ultimately, it's, to, to me, it's a bottom-tier MCU movie, but it's not a bad movie by any means. I would say that it's probably, you know, not one that people are going to go back and watch tons of times, me specifically. But, 
I won't hate it when I get to that point in the marathon. Uh, you know, I'll I'll enjoy it, and and there are things that I really like about the movie. So for me, it's a it's a middler. I give it a seven three out of ten. Um, nothing special. I don't think it's great per se, but I do think it's good, and I think it's worth watching, and I think it will be a good installment in the MCU. But I'm definitely, you know, people cling to those Rotten Tomatoes scores, even though they're not what people think they are, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what the historical <laughs> viewpoint is on this movie going forward. I am most interested in where in the timeline start to finish that this plays out, right? Because as we know, so many of the MCU films were, were released out of chronological order. I'm very fascinated to see where this hits. Um, obviously, it's after Endgame. That's clear. But does it happen after um no way home does it happen after multiverse of madness does it happen after blade so many questions so many opportunities that is what i'm most interested in because this doesn't have a ton of other tie-ins it doesn't have a ton of other um references to where it lands other than it's after thanos as we know that uh thanos was uh part of the Eternals blood, if you will, uh, from, from a, from a different perspective, as uh, we've talked about and cam has highlighted on the show previously. I really enjoyed this movie. Um, not a big fan of Chloe Zhao when she did nomad land. I made that very clear <laughs> in our episode on, on that film, but this was really, really, um, really, really awesome. Really beautiful. Um, I don't think, that it is powerful enough, even though I was intrigued, entertained the whole time, even though the relationships were fascinating, it doesn't, it doesn't go into like best picture mode for me. Um, but it's still very high up. It's still very high up. I don't think it lands, um, as low as some of those other films have been said to like Iron Man three, like Thor dark world, like age of Ultron. I think it supersedes those in a very easy way from, from my perspective, I will say all that. I'm not too far off from cam at the same time. So it's very interesting. This one's very difficult to review, which is why there's so much friction between audience score and critic score. I'm going to give it a 7.9 out of 10 kernels. Yeah, that's a good score. That's a good score. Yeah, Eternals, man. Let's let's get into the the MCU implications because I assume you know. Obviously, we do spoiler free, spoiler full reviews. So if you're listening, you've you've seen the movie probably, or you're at least interested to hear what the MCU implications and so are. So I want to dig into it a little bit. So real quick, you know, we've talked about it a lot. This movie doesn't have a lot of very quick ties to what we've already seen in the MCU or even really what we know has been announced yet in the MCU. But the big things that happen here at the end are the mid credit are the mid and post credit scene. There are two of them for this film. So let's break it down. The first scene is a mid credit scene where so at the end of the movie the Eternals split up once more. Uh, Icarus flies off into the sun. Makari Druig and Fina fly off in the spaceship. Uh, Kingo, Fastos, and Cersei are left on Earth, though they get scooped up by Erishim, and then he's like, I'm going to review your memories to decide if humanity is worth saving, and then they all mm -hmm. kind of disappear together. So I don't really know what that's about. But um, 
as Druig and Makari and Thena are flying into space, they get a visitor in the mid-credits scene. Uh, two visitors, one being Pip the Troll, voiced by Patton Oswalt, um, <laughs> and the other being the big surprise, Eros, brother of Thanos, played by Harry Styles. Uh, so, watermelon sugar. <laughs> so that was the big reveal. Kirk and I both sort of gasped out loud whenever he popped up onto the screen. Um, Eros joining the MCU as well as Pip the Troll. It's an interesting case because both of those characters are heavily tied to storylines that obviously involve Thanos and involve the Infinity Stones. So you're thinking to yourself, the Infinity Saga is over. What's going on here? I'm starting to wonder if we've seen the last of Thanos, to be honest with you. Because mm -hmm. I don't see a logical reason for bringing Eros into the fold if Thanos isn't going to be at play. And I don't really see, you know, one of Pip's big contributions in the comics is being a member of the Infinity Watch who guards the Infinity Stones from bad people. And I don't see the reason to bring them in unless there's going to be some sort of other Infinity Stone related concern or some other concern related to Thanos coming into the fold again. Well, I think we can get back to the Infinity Stones. Obviously, with the multiverse, uh, we got reintroduced to them, of course, through Loki, the yep. Disney Plus series. Right. Um, so I think that we're we're in route there for sure. Um, I don't know what that looks like, what Thanos what will look like, what endeavor he's after, what version of him we'll get, but I can see that all tying in. Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing, too, is... Um you know, Thanos, like you, you mentioned it, Kirk, Thanos is an eternal. He's an eternal. He is born of Alars, who is an eternal from Earth, and uh, Suisin, who is an eternal from Titan. Uh, him and Eros, born of the same parents, they're both of eternal blood. They both have sway on Earth because of the fact that they have ties to it. Um, so as soon as Eternals was mentioned as a project, we the question was, how's this going to tie into to Thanos? Um, these characters... Uh, Pip and Eros are largely written by Jim Starlin who created Thanos. So it's interesting. The direction that we're going continues to sort of point a ton of arrows back at Thanos when we thought we've turned the page on that story. Um, I think the other thing that is interesting about Eros specifically is that he is another, yet another character, him and Pip that really blurs the line between good and bad. You know, they play on both sides of the fence at different times and they sort of, are hosts unto their own. So, you know, Eros is coming into the fold in this mid credit scene. He's saying, I want to help you guys out. You know, they're on a mission to find the other Eternals to see if they can sort of turn the tide against the Celestials here um, and learn more about what's going on. But Eros is saying, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you. And so it's immediately hard to trust him on that just right away and, and know what his intentions are. But it's going to be very interesting. Yeah, Harry Styles walking into their ship felt like an Austin Powers cameo. Yeah. Uh, quite honestly. Um, I was like, wait, is this real? Is it absolutely real? And it was. Um, very different direction. Um, you know, obviously the Eternals was kind of rooted in as real as superheroes could get is what the Eternals kind of felt like. Yeah. And then we had this very psychedelic hippie, scene with these two so having that kind of flavor uh just thrown in at the end 
it's very much uh, leans itself into a mid credit scene that we've seen, you know, throw in some humor. But a lot of times we see that little humor and then it's like, okay, well, we get we get Howard the Duck and we yeah, haven't it's really like a joke, we, right? It's a joke. It's an inside joke with uh, with fans. But this truly seems like we're going somewhere with this and this is the tone that it's going to be. So strap in. Um, it's very chaotic. It's very unpredictable. Um, and bringing Thanos back into the fold of the storyline is a brilliant move, honestly, because we grew to to latch onto Thanos as the largest of all of these uh, sub villains that we saw in, in all of the origin stories from all of our, our biggest MCU heroes. So to bring him back is to bring back something that were that's relatable, even if he isn't the big bad of it all. If we have, like we've talked about multiple big bads in the yeah. same arena. Uh, so it's a brilliant move once again by the MCU, if that's the route we're going. Yeah. I think the other thing to call out with Eros um, outside of Thanos and outside of, you know, anything that's tied to things that have already happened. Looking forward, Eros also fights alongside the Kree. And the, that's important because we know we have Captain Marvel, we have uh, Photon, we have uh, Secret Invasion coming up, which will presumably revolve somewhere around the Kree-Scroll war and conflict and maybe Eros comes into the fold there and that's another way that we see him sort of tie into this larger conflict so that's definitely something to keep an eye on then we get the next scene the the end credit scene where we finally get to see Dane Whitman uh doing some superhero type stuff he has opened the box of the ebony blade and the he reads the inscription which says death is my reward and he starts to reach for the for the blade and all of a sudden a voice from behind him goes are you sure you want to do that mr whitman um or some something to that effect the voice confirmed by chloe Zhao, was none other than mahershala ali's blade um which wow so the ebony blade is the blade that Dane, it was created by Merlin and Sir Percy way back in the day. Um, it becomes heavily associated with the Black Knight. The key with this thing is that the Ebony Blade keep, protects the user, the wielder, from ever being you know killed, keeps them alive and things like that. But the trade-off is, is that over time, it slowly manipulates your brain and brings out your evil tendencies to the point where you have a thirst for blood. And that's why the inscription says death is my reward because it's the, it's the blades reward. It helps you and you help it spill blood basically is how that goes. So it feels like we are on a collision course with Dane Whitman, Dane Whitman becoming the black Knight by wielding the ebony blade. But speaking of blade blade himself is now in the fold as well. What was your thought on, uh, on that post credit scene? Yeah, that was a quick hitter. There was a lot packed into that. My first thought was like, okay, listen, back in the 90s, there was a miniseries with Sam Neill who played Merlin and yeah. we're getting into Merlin stuff. So Sam Neill would be the perfect age awesome. to still be Merlin <laughs> for Kit Harrington. So I'm just throwing that out there. I want to start the petition that if Merlin comes full force into the MCU, either via flashback or whatever, please bring him in. I'm voting for Sam Neill. Uh, the other part is that, wow, I did not expect 
a uh, blade reference this no. early in phase four. I thought we'd get to the end of phase four before we ever even had a glimmer of that. And Agreed. now we're going full force into this saying it's here. It's important. Look out. That blows my mind. It tells you how important that Mahershala is going to be in the next phase of Marvel. Yeah. And I think, yeah, exactly that. That's my takeaway as well is that it's not just, you know, I, I had always wondered sort of what this Blade movie would be. Would it be a movie that they roll out there and it sort of scoots outside of the main storyline until the big events happen? Uh, I don't get that vibe at all anymore. I think it's going to be heavily tied into the main storyline that we're building toward um, with the Avengers and everything that's going to be happening and that uh, Mahershala Ali's Blade is going to be right in the thick of it. Um, so that's that's an exciting revelation, I think, for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's just Eternals itself. You know, they've they've taken this time to build out this whole theology of of the Celestials and the Eternals and all these things, which, again, it, it does help with understanding Thanos a little bit more, so it leans towards bringing that back. But it also just, I think, serves a purpose of, you know, there being this looming threat of Erisham coming back to judge humanity, potentially, You've got that threat. You've got all the other celestials and internals around the world and then or around the universe. And then you've got obviously the multiverse being opened up. It just it takes the MCU in a very cosmic direction. So this to me feels and I I know they probably know what they're doing, but it does feel risky that we are taking the MCU in a little more ungrounded direction, much more cosmic, much more you know, complicated for lack of a better term. I mean, it just really is a little bit more layered and also getting away in, you know, from, in a sense from those characters that people are really comfortable with the Iron Man's, you know, Thor will still be in the picture, but you know, Iron Man, Hulk, who knows what his role ends up being, but Black Widow, obviously gone, uh, Hawkeye, there being a changing of the guard there, Captain America changing over to like, there's a lot of shifting going on and we're passing the torch to a lot of characters that are, you know, kind of where the guardians of the galaxy were when they got introduced and maybe even below that tier, um, which guardians of the galaxy was a huge payoff, but this feels risky. This feels risky for sure. Yeah. It's definitely not linear with all of these avenues, yeah. the multiverse, there's the so much that you can't, um, you can't follow where it's going. And if that's the plan, they're being successful. Will it pay off? Big question mark. Will it, will the idea of, I know where this is going towards the end of a big bad, if that, if that works better or not, um, it's, it's just a playground. It's a big sandbox right now. And maybe they already have it lined out that it is linear in on multiple branches uh, in that level. But right now it just seems like pure and utter chaos, controlled chaos. Yes. But pulling that all together uh, is so unpredictable, which is probably exactly where they want us. Yeah, I agree. And I, I one of my big question marks is just, will the mainstream fans stay, stay on for this ride? You know, that's sort of been the key to the appeal is that like, yes, it's superhero movies and it appeals to that group, but it also like appeals to the every person. 
Mm. And now that they're doing the shows and they're doing much more movies, you know, four movies per year type of release schedule. And, you know, kind of like they had like four shows this year that released. Will the every fan stick around for that? Or will they get lost in the shuffle and, and left behind? I think that's, that would be a very real concern for me if I was Marvel studios, but they certainly have a plan and they're executing it. So we'll just have to wait and see. Beautiful. All right. Well, that's all we've got on internals. Obviously there's a lot there to discuss. Thank you guys so much for listening uh, and, and supporting us as always. We really appreciate you. If you happen to be watching this on YouTube, go ahead and hit that subscribe button for us. That would be a huge, huge help. We're going to be trying to get our content back on schedule as we've had a couple of bumpy weeks and we're heading into the holidays. So who knows, but we are working through it and we appreciate you guys being along for the ride. As always, want to give a special thank you to our executive producer, Mr. Ryan Spriggs. And of course, the band that created our awesome original music. That band is called Rhetoric. Check them out anywhere you listen to music, and we will talk to you guys next time. See ya.